This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, all right. So we are back with an Art of Dark pod, uh, specifically a dark room. Today we are talking about Anna Kavan. Kevin, do you remember Anna Kavan? I do. Uh, oh. Kind of a, a bit of a spoiled brat. Went through. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, went, you know, but went through some real terrible stuff. I mean, That's like her, right. her, did her father jump from a boat? Her father jumped off of a boat. That's right. God. Yeah, yeah. And, Why do we her, do this show, man? <laughs> and so her mother, dark. her mother was a It was also a real piece of work. So, oh, man, yeah. But she yeah. was a, a, a fabulous novelist. Lived in London. I remember this. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. She, English woman traveled posh. the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. posh. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, we we did do a slight. T- we touched on her again a little bit when with Adam Lehrer when he came on um, because Anna Gavan appears in his book Communions. So uh, we did talk a little bit more Burroughs in that episode, but um, this is uh, exciting. We, uh, we had a, uh, a friend reach out to us, John Arterberry. Um, I'm saying that right, mostly, am I? Yes, you got it. Yep. Okay, great. Okay. Well, welcome, welcome to the show, man. Um, uh, John reached out to us um, because he has read an unpublished Annika Vaughn novel that is, I believe, in the Library of Congress. Is that right? Yes. So it was actually published through Peter Owen back in the day, kind of, but it's just long out of print. And Eagle's Nest is the one. Ah, great, great. Yeah. So we're going to definitely dig into that. And I've I've, I've kind of, uh, you know, I listened back to our Annika Vaughn episode um, in the last week, just kind of trying to remember, you know, what we talked about. And I kind of realized, Kevin, we were so young back then. Uh, <laughs> it's like like a year ago. Just or so. babies. Yeah, I mean, you know, babies. look. I mean, we are. You know, we are developing this podcast as we go. Yeah. yeah. Nobody had a plan. No. Brad no. That was like our. Plan? Yeah, that was our third episode. I think we landed. Was it in an hour? Yeah. We. You're we did kidding it in me. An hour. Oh <laughs> no. Yeah. So because now we know that we go for like three hours. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's good. So this is mm. great. We get a chance to kind of talk talk about her. It's good. Uh, talk about this this book um you know find out what john knows about her have some conversations and 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 uh and find some kind of things that i've come across i've been i, I have her, to interject here yeah. it, that episode it feels like more than an hour like <laughs> it does spiritually yeah. for yes. me yeah yeah. Okay. yeah absolutely yeah no mm-hmm. and, and and that was the the beginning sort of of my annika von journey so but first before we get in that john uh why don't you tell folks a little bit about you Sure, absolutely. And yeah, thanks again for having me on, guys. Absolutely. Um, it's exciting. So yeah, 
Name is John Arterbury. I am a Virginia-based writer and researcher. Worked previously as a journalist, always just had a love for books, weird outside artists, right? The kind of esoteric and the strange. And it was actually the first Annika Vaughn podcast that was my gateway more to like the extended Kavan universe, oh, right? But cool. also the podcast as well. Uh, cool. So when I had this little journey to go find this out of print book, uh, y'all are first in my mind. And yeah, I'm looking forward to sharing it. Uh, oh, cool. So we, we uh, Kavan pilled you. Kind of, yeah. Like yeah. New York Book Books had like, yeah. was like yeah. the early 4chan of it for me, right? And yeah. like, yeah, yeah. yeah. me to her as a concept, read Machines in the Head. And yeah, wanted to know more about her. And when honestly, I searched Spotify for on a Kavan, y'all pulled up and I was like, all right, let's roll. That's awesome. I literally told, I, I literally had this idea early on when we started the show. I was like, if we pick somebody obscure, we'll be the only Spotify listing for that person. <laughs> right? It's like, find something you're just like, no one knows anything about and become yeah. the expert on it, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And the internet's a big place. So, mm-hmm. um, so no, no, that is, that's, that's awesome. Um, so, that kind of that was I was kind of going to ask you your, your origin story with Anna Kavan. That's really interesting. And I, I mean, I'm still I'm still reading her. When we did that episode, I'd read Ice and I'd read Machines in the Head, and I'd read you know some of the biographical material uh, material obviously in order to prepare for the show. And then since then, I've been kind of um, I started reading uh, Sleep Has His House or <laughs> um, just recently, which is pretty incredible. And we're gonna I want to read a part of that at some point in this hour. Um, Mm-hmm. And uh, also has I have a weird relationship with that because the American publication of that book is the same title as a novel I wrote, uh, which just makes things strange for me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, uh, I guess one thing I want to talk about, I do want to get into this. The Is it Eagle's Nest or The Eagle's Nest? Just Eagle's Nest. Eagle's Nest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you, uh, what is your sense of, Annika Vaughn's kind of legacy. I mean, I, I, it's hard to know sometimes you get in these sort of information silos, right? And I spend time on Twitter and, and, and so I've followed people who are into Kavan and maybe people who are into Anna Kavan have followed me. But do we have a sense of like her larger influence? Like is, are people talking more about Anna Kavan or am I just uh, having, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> and, you know what, what is that term when you see something everywhere? Um, right, the kind of like Bader Meinhof effect. Yes, or exactly, right. exactly. I'm having that for Annika Vaughn, I feel like, but maybe, yeah. but it seems mm. like she's having, she's kind of appearing. Yeah. We have to tease. What is the uh, the After Dark tease oh, for this right, for this right, episode, right. Brad? No, thank you. you have to tease that to in the first track. few minutes. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah. going to talk about uh, a little bit more. I did some more research on Dr. Carl Bluth. This mm-hmm. was Annika Vaughn's dealer uh, or doctor or mm-hmm. also artistic plug. collaborator, uh, her mm-hmm. plug. And uh, we're also going to talk a little bit more about, uh, we mentioned this in the first episode, we're going to talk about Dr. Ludwig Banswanger, I believe is how you say his name, <laughs> something along those lines, um, who, was, uh, who was her doctor awesome. for a period of time at the sanatorium Bellevue. Um, so Patreon.com so slash art of dark pod. Yes. The extra yes. content. There yeah, you go. Absolutely. Right. So yeah. So it. yeah. No. No. That. Thank you, Kevin. You get. You, you, this is why we need at least two of us, so one person can can put <laughs> can do the plugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. So this thing about legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's showing up in uh, that Charlie Kaufman movie from a year or two mm-hmm. ago. She's showing up. There's a. There's a. Anna Kavan. Uh, uh, society now group 
uh, Victoria Lockwood, I think is the name of the woman that, that runs that. But do, do you sense that she's like becoming a thing in some way? Honestly, it's hard to say. I mean, I would suspect she kind of peaked more recently a couple years ago, right? Because that's when you had the republication of ICE. Uh, and of course, you have Jonathan Lethem as big contemporary writer. He's a big fan of hers. Um, J.G. Ballard was kind of the equivalent more in her contemporary era, I think, yeah. and advancing her, especially in the U.S. And yeah, you have I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which the Kaufman film on Netflix is probably the most like overtly Kavanesque piece of media I can think of, right? She yeah. exists in this very weird liminal space. And on some levels, maybe you could say something like Inception is kind of Kavanesque, right? If you want to go more mainstream with it. Um, loose. Yeah, with, on, like, a, on a Kavan with, with assault rifles. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, kind of popularized, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But in a way, too, it's like, this is maybe the story of Anna Kavan, right? And her works. It's like, unclear where she exists and who she was. You have these shifting names, you have shifting geographies and images in her story. And at some point, she herself is a bit slippery. And it's not really surprising. I guess that's kind of kind of what her legacy is, too. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there is something about her, her writing you know, you'll come across writers and, you know, I'm a fan of some of them who they don't reach a, they don't have a kind of breakthrough popularity because they're say dense and difficult to understand. You know, we did an episode on William Faulkner. William Faulkner's um, sort of popularity is always going to be limited by the fact that the, the, the density of it just mm -hmm. simply is off-putting for people. Anna Kavan isn't dense, really i mean i mean you can it's it's it, sentence by sentence we're talking about something like a high school grade reading level right it's it's beautifully done but it's but it's 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 pretty straightforward in terms of just references and language and syntax it's the um uncertainty of what to do with a lot of it like mm -hmm. how you uh, you know they tried to make ice a science fiction novel which which right. you know kind of sort of yeah yeah i guess it sort of is but like that seems like a really reductive to me to call that mm -hmm. a a science fiction novel um and you know as someone who reads science fiction from time to time so it's not mm -hmm. it's not that i think it's dirty it's sully's ice to put it in here with this this uh genre stuff it's just yeah, you're setting up the wrong expectations for people. I mean, I think of her more in like uh, Kafka, maybe yeah, J.G. Ballard, uh, um, Borges a little bit for people who are familiar with Borges. Yeah, this kind of more surrealist or metafiction almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then recently um, I read a book by, are you familiar with uh, Gerald Murnane, the Australian writer? Mm -mm. Yeah, so he's kind of having his due lately as well. A book called The Plains and a number of others. That struck me as like the most, he has to have read uh, Annika Vaughn, I think. <laughs> Let's see how he could have avoided Direct it. Influence, yeah. Right? yeah, and he's somebody who's now, I feel like, is kind of getting his due. He's a, he'll be an interesting figure, Kevin, once uh, he's, I believe he's still alive. Let's um, get him on the show. We'll get him on there. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think he's ever left Australia. We've got two options, Brad. Yeah, Either yeah. they die or we have them on the ship. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, this that's... is the art of darkness. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so, okay. So we, we, we talked in our first episode about the, 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 the books that she's written and she wrote, she was fairly prolific. Mm -hmm. um, you know, her most popular book was ice that came out. She'd finished it at the time of her death, but it, I, if I'm remembering right, it hadn't come out yet. Um, 
and she'd had sort of hits and misses along the way, but never really broke through other than becoming, having the status sort of as a writer's writer, um, mm-hmm. like Ballard and, and um, the science fiction writer, Brian Aldiss was a big promoter of hers. Um, but so tell us about, I, I want to talk about um, her, the book you read at the library of Congress, but first like, tell me, what is it like going to the library of Congress? I, I'm an archive, you know, per, I love archives, but I've never been there. What is that place like? So, I mean, it's actually a beautiful setting to read literally anything, right? Yeah. And I think when I went into this, I was kind of hoping for this Kavanesque adventure that, you know, I'm going to this big opaque library and there will be this yeah. Byzantine system governing everything. Yeah. Uh, but it was actually fairly straightforward. Like the staff were perfectly helpful. Oh, okay. uh, pretty much any, I don't know what the qualifications are, but like basically if you have a U.S. driver's license, you can almost same day get set up in there. Um, but there was kind of this, I guess the closest to Kavanaugh's thing is their offsite storage for their special collections is actually at Fort Meade where the NSA is. So you do need to request like a couple of days in advance so they can ship it out from Fort Meade to the LOC so you can take it into the reading room. So I did request Eagle's Nest from where the NSA is headquarters. So it's kind of like a funny little Wait, so why? Like. Just Wait, having like a normal time. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't that Wait, wasn't that Hitler's uh like bunker in the what that's what the, right. that's what he he had his little hideaway, right? right? In Fort you know, Meade? That's like an obvious direct comparison. <laughs> There's no allusions to that in the story at all. Uh you yeah. would have obviously known, right? Because the Eagle's Nest, right? I think it's like in Berchtesgaden or whatever in Austria where he had his yeah, his little retreat. Hmm. Um, but it's actually kind of like the name of the town and the estate that this nebulous administrator character lives in, uh, okay. which I'll break down a bit when we get into the book. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, for any kind of yeah. enterprising amateur researcher, LOC is like perfectly cool place to go. Just uh, follow the rules and listen to the staff and you'll be you'll be golden. I want to get into the book, but now you've mentioned why why is the stuff at fort meade is it like security or like i, don't know. I think it's probably just some really mundane like government because writing is, is too powerful brad is that ah yes. we're okay. witches man writers exactly. are witches that's why. Protected, right yeah that's right Ooh. <laughs> it's the uh the end of uh raiders yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Peel that off, and yeah, uh, people's faces <laughs> melt there regularly. It's a, right. a known issue. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Okay. So tell <laughs> us about tell us about tell us about the book. I, I guess let's get into that. So it's a good book, and you know the way this came about is I was looking at her other over and saw Eagle's Nest mentioned out there. There's a few good reads on it, so clearly people are out here finding it. But the only used copy was like two hundred dollars or something insane. And then the only location with a library was the LOC, at least around here. I'm in Northern Virginia, so it was convenient, but like I'd have to drive several hours basically to find a copy otherwise. Um, So yeah, checked it out. It is full disclosure, not as good as ice, but I think that's a high bar to set, right? Um, But it is firmly within the realm of her later surrealist or slipstream or however you want to code it work. Uh, because there are these unpublished novels that Peter Owen and others have republished since her death, like Guilty or The Parson, that are a little more mundane um, in terms of how prosaic they are, right? They're not necessarily bad books or anything, but they don't have quite that fantastical element you see in Ice or Eagle's Nest. So Eagle's Nest is kind of that halfway point between those books and then her pinnacle with Ice. And it draws immediately a Kafkaesque comparison to the castle or something, because the basic premise of Eagle's Nest is that there's an advertising executive 
who is summoned by this mysterious administrator character to go out to an estate in this remote town and basically help organize his library. And the book is the series of mishaps and misunderstandings and just confusions that occur at this estate over the next like 180 odd pages. So it's pretty straightforward in its plot. Not a lot, frankly, happens. There are only a handful of characters in typical Kavan fashion. They are completely not two-dimensional. They're just never elaborated. And they have like one name. It's not even necessarily a name that makes sense, like Upjohn or Penny. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, there's the administrator. There's the flower-selling girl. There's the hairdresser, right? And maybe this is part of like the accessibility issue for Kavan. It's not that her writing's necessarily dense. But if you're looking for anything you could possibly relate to in your life, in terms of plot or prose, you're not going to find it in a Kavan novel, right? Or not in a later one. Yeah. Let me uh, jump in here. It, mm-hmm. uh, because I, ha- I have to confess, I don't know her writing. Is it mm-hmm. cinematic? Does it feel like a film? Or no. Ice does sometimes. It can, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Uh, It's like this unfolding quality to it that's kind of hard to describe. And more so in Eagle's Nest, even than Ice, and you get taste of it in Ice, there's a metaphysical quality to it. Uh, This kind of like, this dreamlike sense or this feeling that you're looking behind this like veil of reality. It's like a parable or it's like like folktale. Kind of, or like almost psychedelic in a folktale. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. And yeah, yeah, yeah. when I was reading this, I thought to myself, like, Kavan is almost anti-Lovecraftian. There's a horror that permeates her work, right? Mm-hmm. But it occurs in this spectrum that is very opposite from this kind of like amorphous cosmic sense of horror that somebody like Lovecraft cultivates. In in Kavan's world, it's much more like reality itself is disordered. And this could be because of a character's either warped or unreliable understandings of their surroundings, or it could be this Kafka-esque, like, you know, there are these terrible events that are happening across the world or systems or bureaucracies. Sure. This is what it really digs into, but they're much yeah. more like mundane in how they occur. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, yeah, I, I kind of see what, the, as soon as you started talking about that, I thought like part of the Lovecraft thing is that, whatever's coming out of the void is like monstrous Mm -hmm. right and with Kavan it's sort of like so so with Lovecraft if you dig into reality you're gonna get tentacles Mm -hmm. (laughs) and with Kavan it's like if you dig into reality uh, it feels like ultimately you won't come across anything yeah, like exactly. it'll be confusing and in, in, in the patterns will make less and less sense, but eventually you don't end up anywhere, sort of. Definitely. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the Lovecraft protagonists, like they're going to go insane when this elder right. God finally like, right. Himself, yeah. right? And yeah. in Kavan, it's like, this is also another contrast I thought of. Lovecraft often says things like non-Euclidean geometry, which as a reader, you're just like, what the hell is that? Right? Right, I can right. imagine, like, I don't know. Yeah. That episode was a banger, by the way. Yeah. We, like, people love the Lovecraft episode. <laughs> did. Yeah. yeah He's definitely recommended. Uh, in, in Kavan's writing, it's almost, again, that polar opposite in the sense that, like, there's these very sharp geometries. Like, she can look out a window mm-hmm. and see, like, these crystalline layers that are, like, opening up or something and it's almost like if you read accounts of people who use like substances like dmt or something where they're seeing like fractals or crystals wouldn't be me yeah no comment right but like 
you get that sense in Kavan's book. And there's a passage mm. here that I highlighted that's great. And it's this, it's this very mundane passage in Eagle's Nest where the protagonist looks out the window and feels something else. So it goes, for a second, I felt slightly dizzy, but this soon too passed, leaving me with no feeling either of reality or of surprise. A mountain had broken in pieces, and that was all. I was not concerned with the conduct of mountains, but with that barely glimpsed integration of interrelated patterns, the harmony reconciling all discords, resolving all conflicts, that, if only I could understand it, should lead to total awareness and total understanding, explain everything, and put me in contact with the reality of the universe. Whoa. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's <laughs> Whoa, like, doggy. Yeah. the window and sees that, right? Right. What? Right. It's a poem. I mean, that's she's, she's a poet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And she definitely, she definitely goes those places. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I had a quote. I had a, I had one thing I wanted to read from Ice because when we did our first episode, we we, we sort of didn't give it totally its due. And I think it, I think we can get, I think with what you just read and with what I'm about to read, I think we'll we'll be able to really convey this to to an audience. So this is from Ice. Um. I should have started searching for her all over again. In that book, he's constantly searching for this girl. Um, the repetition was like a curse. I thought of placid blue seas, tranquil islands far away from war. I thought of the Indris, those happy creatures, symbols of life and peace on a higher plane. I could clear out, go to them. No, that was impossible. I was tied to her. I thought of the ice moving across the world, casting its shadow of creeping death, Ice cliffs boomed in my dreams, indescribable explosions thundered and boomed, icebergs crashed, hurled huge boulders into the sky like rockets, dazzling ice stars bombarded the world with rays which splintered and penetrated the earth, filling earth's core with their deadly coldness, reinforcing the cold of the advancing ice, and always on the surface, the indestructible ice mass was moving forward, implacably destroying all life. I felt a fearful sense of pressure and urgency. There was no time to lose. I was wasting time. It was a race between me and the ice. So it, to me, calls in like we were talking about with the mountains, but what's interesting about that passage as well is at one point, this is apparently happening in the world, this ice, but he describes it as though it's happening in his dreams and the boundary between the two gets completely lost. So you're not sure whether we're in, we're actually in the character's dream or he's re recounting the dream, or this is the real world and it relates to his dream. Um, and yeah, this, this is just sort of, I feel like to some degree, Annika Vaughn probably lived, she had to have lived like that at times, or, or this is, you know, we, we all know she's for people who didn't listen to the first episode, Annika Vaughn was like, a pro like the first heroin addict <laughs> not not really the first but right. but but you know she was she was a she was she got hooked on heroin in 1925 I don't believe. do heroin kids no, no that's 100 percent what the show's about yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so bad idea and <laughs> yeah and we learned from adam lehrer that she basically did everything heroin was just the sort of the 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 regular the, the constant addiction so she probably was getting this from uh, Brad, I mean, you know, um, I'm sorry. Right. I mean, she was she was like in a hypnagogic state there. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's she was bringing like English, like the English language, into some new level of like poetry and and like expressing her own pain. I think so. I think yeah. so. I mean, yeah, that's that's what that is. I mean, mm -hmm. she had no chil uh, children. 
They died. They, they died. One died in infancy and one died in World War II. She's yeah. just descri- she's describing her, her just, just a wail of pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Twin Peaks season three. <laughs> I was thinking about David Lynch when I was re- rethinking about Anna Kavan. I don't think I, it's know, that far afield. I have to, you know, yeah. It's just, it's this, they, everyone at the end of the, uh, the 19th century coming into the 20th century was just beginning to accept that dreams mm-hmm. are as real as, as the real. And mm-hmm. so this is somebody trying to pen a dream. We're still dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's all. I, was, I mean, that was kind of what the modernist movement uh, in part was about. I think, mm-hmm. right, was to start taking the dream world seriously, um, yes. at least in, in the West, you know, as it hadn't been for, yeah. for, for a, for a I while. Mean, no, it's, it's wonderful. It's, po- it's poetry when mm-hmm. she's, yeah, and she's, she's expressing her pain, mm-hmm. you know, to you, mm-hmm. so, which is why you feel something. Like, yeah. people don't, yeah. yeah. Well, in, in an indication, I think, of how real all of that, well, obviously her pain was real to her, but how how deep all of this goes is she creates a character on a Kavan her, you know, that's not her name. Anna Kavan, right, that's right. not her birth name. She creates yeah, a character. She's, named she's like, a, she's a proto weeb. She's on yeah. the internet. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so then yeah. she, she steps into her own work and mm-hmm. then sort of becomes this person that step tries and, and then sort of gets stuck halfway coming back into our world. That's, that's sort of my impression of her uh, in terms of like, like what her, her yeah, yeah. psychological experience fair is. enough yeah. yeah well hey man you, you no, know, no 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 we're trying to write a book you. it's 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 hey, hard man. work writing a book sometimes Dude, the best it's, way you know, is to lose it, your mind yeah well you know and they you know it's <laughs> yeah well there you go you have to lose your mind a little bit you have to hear yeah. voices yeah sometimes for sure oh, so yeah. so what else can we say about this how long is eagle's nest and is it feel I, the thing i was curious about you did mention that it was published before but now it's sort of out of print mm-hmm. uh does it feel finished it does actually it yeah. is, does feel finished it's just a bit shy of 200 pages in the okay. edition i read um yeah. and it's a cohesive work. I won't spoil the ending in the hopes that it does get republished one right. day and listeners right. could check it out. I will say that the ending of Ice Lives Rent-Free in my head, the oh, ending God. of Eagle's Nest is not quite that level. Again, Ice is just her masterpiece. Can't have yeah. those expectations. But it's a solid, cohesive plot as far as like a Kavan novel goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the kind of narrative arc of it, right? And I'll do best as I can a little summary here. Sure. Get this advertising executive summoned to this estate. They make it out there. It's very bizarre there. There seem to only be two staff who really work it. The administrator who runs it is never seen. The protagonist time and again keeps trying to like actually do work in this library and keeps getting thwarted, right? And there's this sense of paranoia that like, hey, the local staff and the locals who live in the town are all against the protagonist. Maybe even the administrator, there's a great line about how the administrator might be governed by some system itself that's even beyond everything else, like some superstructure. Um, and what they wind up doing is just kind of like exploring the state. They make a painting at one point, they write a letter to the administrator, and then towards the end of the book, they finally get an audience with the administrator. And that right there, along with like a couple little forays into the town outside of the estate, is like 80% of the novel, right? So you get the impression that like not a whole lot is happening other than these like, you know, just thoughts about like what is happening or why is this place? Or again, these like 
little trips outside where they look at the mountains and they feel that reality is being disordered or restructured in some sense. And I think, yeah, to speak to what Kevin mentioned, there is a sense of loss and pain and it's pretty profound in there. And there's this one moment where the protagonist feels unmoored from reality and it's almost euphoric. They feel really at peace and like, as if for whatever reason they were drawn away from their ordinary life Mm. has some purpose here, even if it's just to like part reality a bit and exist in this kind of like heightened state of awareness. And you almost wonder if that's something that like Kavan and her grief or in her addiction or struggles had looked for herself. Right. And I think on the more macro level, there's something, if you've ever been exposed to like substance abuse or recovery community literature experiences, there's this sense of many selves within yourself or like a multiplicity of selves. Like, Mm -hmm. Hey, maybe that was the addict me or that was the whoever me, or that was the me who had grief or trauma in this part of my past. And I think a lot of that is Kavan trying to reconcile all these strands in her writing. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's easy for us to say like, Hey, she was a heroin user and (laughs) I feel kind of bad for her because that's always appended to like every literal thing that's written about her. Right. Yeah. Uh, But it, it does lend context. And I think, I think there was a deep, deep pain with that. And you see that in a lot of her writing, but might also be confirmation bias, right? You know to look for it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, uh, I, re- I, re- I really want to read this book now. <laughs> so I'm probably not going to pay the $200 for it, but if I find myself <laughs> yeah. in, in the Library of Congress area, for sure. Uh, there does seem to be, and I noticed this in her other work, there does seem to be like a... Um, part of the way there's a suggestion that part of the way you deal with the 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 existential um issues of life the crises of life is something like a letting go is like if you kind of reeling from the complexities of it and there is a sense of I, i get this mostly in machines in the head where it's like she'll describe these sort of terrible situations or this, this, and she doesn't give it in detail. It's not like you even really understand why it's terrible. Exactly. She's sort of boxed in in some way. That's not a hundred percent clear. Um, but, but her response to it seems to be this, like, um, you start to almost not care about it. It's like, that's how you survive. It's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a uh, conditioning yourself to just sort of accept it. Whereas like, well, with Lovecraft, right? Like the horror, the horrors of the world will kill you with fear. And with Kafka, you'll have an anxiety attack of some kind, or, or you'll, you know, there'll be a, a series of misadventures. Man, and then I mean, you know, you're, like, you're describing like a, like a, a European trust fund kid versus an American. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm actually quite, I'm yeah. I'm being quite serious. No, I get I yeah. get I, I catch your drift for sure. I mean, Lovecraft, Lovecraft certainly uh, he didn't have uh, much of a budget. He had a little bit of a budget. The um, the bottom is just lower, you know. Yeah, I mean they're yeah. they're just describing different you know systems. I mean, like yeah. she was she was part of the common the common wheel, right? Mm-hmm. So she's mm-hmm. you know describing the Kafka esque bu- bureaucracy, and meanwhile Lovecraft is just describing the empty god goddamn bottomless pit that america is you know and just trying to you know they're they're the same people just 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 uh you know reacting yeah there's there's another well that oh go ahead yeah yeah no you're right no it's you know as as artists like it's 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 tough because we we shouldn't react too much do you know what i mean like 
You should, well, you should assert yourself. But this is, this is why, like, you know, ah, anyway, go on. <laughs> well, I, I mean, we, when we read these, I'm always a little jealous of the trust funders. I got I to gotta admit, Kevin. You know, well, you know, it'd be, it'd be nice. are you? I mean, this is bad. I mean, yeah, they're, they're yeah, you know, yeah. are they happy? Well, the two, bi- the two biggest trust funders I think we've covered on the show are Annika Vaughn and William S. Burroughs, and I wouldn't take either of their lives. So I guess you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I'd yeah. say she was taken care of, but she struggled, right? Oh, yeah. Was- yeah. It was a life of, I mean, it was a life of pain. And she, mm-hmm. We lost count of her suicide attempts. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, let's try, it's rough. I mean, it's, it's not good. Like, no. you, you know, okay. All right. Well, she remind, um, but the other, in thinking more about Annika Vaughn, <laughs> Have you read, John, are you familiar, familiar with uh, Juna Barnes, Nightwood? No, okay, yeah. So um, I, I don't know why I didn't think of this the first time we, we read, this, read this through. So Juna Barnes was this writer working in the 1930s. Um, mm. She's sort of, uh, she, she would have been kind of part of like the F. Scott Fitzgerald set if she hadn't like rapidly become a recluse. And she wrote this great novel called Nightwood that is... Um, it's it's more dense than Annika Vaughn's work, but it's similarly dreamlike. It's similarly, um, you kind of can't get your footing in terms of where you are in space and time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's it's interesting. It's one of like the first books that was published by a, a major publisher that has like a, a foregrounded lesbian relationship, uh, which you almost lose track of. And then there's this interesting part in Nightwood where this Dr. Matthew O'Connor, who's not a real doctor, he's this guy who's always pontificating about the nature of the night and all of these things. Um, the main character walks in on him and he's like, and when he's at home by himself, he wears women's clothes, hmm. which now we wouldn't make all that much of it. But this was published in like 1934 or something. And there was a little bit of an outrage. He was also a unlicensed gynecologist this Dr. Matthew O'Connor character. So there's yeah. some, there's some diversions. This is, that, those aren't things that Annika Vaughn would necessarily ever do, but like, um, let me give you, I'm going to just read. I, I was struck by, uh, in reading sleep has his house. I was struck and reminded of this passage, very quick passage from Juna Barnes Nightwood. So let me just read it real quick. Um, if I can find it. Yeah. Okay. This, this is just excerpted from a conversation that happens in this book. Have you thought of the night now in other times in foreign countries in Paris when the streets were uh, when the streets were gall high with things you wouldn't have done for a dare's sake and the way it was then with the pheasants necks and the goslings beaks dangling against the hocks of the gallants and not a pavement in place and everything gutters for miles and miles and a stench so that it plucked you by the nostrils and you were 20 leagues out. The criers telling the price of wine so much effect that the dawn saw good clerks full of piss and vinegar and bloodletting in side streets where some wild princess in a night shift of velvet howled under a leech. Not to mention the palaces of Nymphenburg echoing back to Vienna with the night trip of late kings letting water into plush cans and fine woodwork. No, I can see you have not. No. You should, for the night has been going on for a long time. Hmm. And then I think this is Juna Barnes is doing something similar that Annika Vaughn does. It's just like <laughs> yeah. the, breaking the world Boom. into pieces and then Boom. like reassembling it in this Bang. dreamlike bricolage kind of thing and yeah, saying, yeah, this yeah. is what it looks like to me. It's well, like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And it's just also, I just love shouting out Juna Barnes. So <laughs> I have to check that out for sure. That, that kind of sense of like breaking apart and reordering night as a concept, right? Like mm-hmm. that's very, 
kind of Kavanesh. Something that struck me, and I don't know how you would possibly describe this, but have you ever had one of those moments where maybe you're you're driving or something and you look out the window and for a brief second, everything just seems like it's in a different order? Maybe that's just me or maybe I just need more sleep on that day or something. <laughs> I've or, had that. I've had that. It's kind of almost, it's not a deja vu, but it's like this kind of spine tingling, similarly structured feeling. There's something of that, that slipperiness of reality, I don't know how you want to call it, that permeates Kavan's writing and that you also, it sounds like you see in Nightwood as well. Yeah. Just, yeah. It's just metaphysics. Yeah. You're just, yeah, well, you're it's, it's, literally, yeah. we have a word for it. It's metaphysics. We're right. feeling something that's not of the real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and Kavan's definitely... Kevon's definitely going there. I have experienced driving sometimes where um, I've lived in a lot of places and I'll be driving on a road and then I'll have like this weird deja vu mm-hmm. based on the arrangement of things. But it's actually because I was driving on a similar street in like another state years ago. Right. And I have like this weird, you get this weird looping kind of. You guys are, we're just literally just going to do thing. like a lost highway pill. I am well, this is, so into Kevin, Lynch I right now. I can't in, tell you how into Lynch I am. I just did a podcast. I'm so into it. Kevin, in my notes for today, I literally wrote David Lynch Lost Highway. Dude, it's it's the it's <laughs> he's he understands. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, so you're right. I think I think Kavan I can't the, rant Kavan enough the, about like how good this is. Like I, yeah. he's he's our American saint. Like yeah. just yeah. watch David Lynch and he will explain America to, to you like in mm-hmm. in in a in a really visceral way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think yeah. it's hard to deny. And I think Kavan, I think I mean, this is the thing. I think Kavan is actually in the David Lynch sort of lineage. That's what there's, I'm that's what I'm picking yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, there's like a there's like a line that starts with who knows what, with who knows who, passes through mm-hmm. Franz Kafka, uh, passes through, you know, to some extent Borges and Juna Barnes, passes through Anna yeah, Kavan, yeah. ends mm-hmm. up in David Lynch and Gerald Murnay. Watch really watch the straight story. Like the straight story is so good <laughs> with your women and they will cry. They will weep and you will be free of just, it's just so pure. So yeah. pure. Yeah. 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 So uh, go ahead, John. Oh, I got a great quote right here, actually, that kind of yeah. speaks directly to that metaphysical quality from Eagle's yeah. Nest. And it's as the character is reflecting on everything strange that has happened in Eagle's Nest. Uh, he says, I could only suppose that in the first flush of wonder at Eagle's Nest, in that strange atmosphere saturated with wonders, immeasurably remote from everyday life, it must have been easy to accept the reality of a metaphysical experience. And having accepted it, all my vague uneasiness vanished as if by magic. I was relieved of all responsibility. My feeling was that I put myself into the hands of my benefactor, the administrator, who would take care of everything, leaving me free to relax luxuriously in an almost uncanny sense of well-being, gaiety even, as if I'd been reborn without any self-consciousness as the happy, hopeful, handsome young man I had been in my early 20s. And it dovetails (laughs) with a fear of mortality that lurks in the very back pages of this book. And it hits that kind of anti-Lovecraftian, yeah, you see behind reality and you just accept it and you're at peace. Which again could have been some of the political economy I, here. I've already yeah. said this. I've already said this. It's the difference between like Lovecraft <laughs> and, and America, like yeah, and the yeah. Brits. Yeah. In Britain, they will look after you, but you're <laughs> in this swamp of just total. You're never gonna be free, you know. And in America, we're just you know tentacles. 
tentacles. Just tentacles. <laughs> just tentacles. Just, you know, it's not, you know, they're not even subtle. That's the thing about the, like these great writers. It's like they, they, mm-hmm. they, they punch. They just, yeah. the, the, the metaphor that they use is so extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about Kafka. It's so like he was a hack. <laughs> He was was because he wasn't. We have to clarify when you say that because he wasn't. Because it went further than he he sort of saw it was going to. Fair enough. I mean, it's just like you know, he like imagine Kafka in a strip mall Mm -hmm. in California, randomly. Like you know, you're just you're you're dealing with like like, it's so out of whack. Like Mm -hmm. that's that's what it is. I mean, like we're there is no West capital w west like like Mm -hmm. the americas have nothing to do with europe that's nothing you don't think anything Uh, well you know okay all right it's not (laughs) a political podcast yeah we just try to have fun brad agreed i don't know man i just like you know i but you know he's talking about the anti-lovecraft kavan lovecraft Mm -hmm. it's just i think is i think is a really cool observation and i agree it is i I agree actually extraordinarily good yeah yeah stop yeah she's there's yeah. There, there's a thing there's a thing with 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 kavan and that quote and i think you see it in machines in the head too where um and i think this relates to her sort of her her treatment and her mm-hmm. being in the asylum where there is this this um okay i give up i give up i give up some elements of my identity in order Whatever. to be um taken care of and and That's like awesome. relieved temporarily of this trauma a surrender almost yep. yeah and then at some point when that relief is enough for me to start paying attention again i realize that i've been trapped in some way mm-hmm. like and i think that's with i think and i think that relates honestly to heroin addiction right I, not, not that i've ever had heroin addiction but i know enough about it from, from people and from reading and that I think part of what's going on there is like it does give you relief at first, right? These things people take drugs because they, at first anyway, they do as, they perform as advertised. Right, exactly. And I yeah. think you know, as like you know, ex-cigarette smoker here, right? Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with that feeling of like, hey, I'm really craving a smoke right now, and then yeah. you feel normal, you feel reset. But one of the great like I guess frameworks for learning how to reset your mind on quitting smoking is when you realize that you're only smoking cigarettes so you can feel what a non-smoker feels like all the time, right? right? right, right, right. <laughs> Which yeah, is kind exactly. of the rich irony of it. And you get that sense, yeah, of being trapped and of being deceived and of being maybe misled by situations that seem otherwise benign. That's a very, very common trope in Eagle's Nest, uh, less so maybe in Ice, but you also see it more in some of our other work, like the Parson, for example, uh, was a posthumous novel. What yeah, did you, have, have you read? Have you read the Parson? I haven't read that one. Yeah, I've read the Parson. I would, yeah. I could recommend. I would still recommend Ice as her first yeah. book for anybody. Parson's a good follow up. It's uh, fairly straightforward. It focuses mostly on an unrequited love, which is interesting because a lot of her later novels have this plot point. Like Guilty has it. The Parson has it. You can make an argument, right? Little sus that uh, Ice is unrequited love in a sense, right? Um, mm-hmm. But you don't have that in Eagle's Nest. It is solely an individual looking introspectively. And in that regard, it's a little closer to Sleep Has His House and Structure. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sleep Has His House is, is uh, like I said, I've started reading it. I haven't gotten all the way through it, but it's sort of, uh, 
I, I'm gradually getting obsessed with it uh, because she does this wonderful thing where like she sets up, uh, she'll have these per, um, parent, uh, not parent, that are italicized sections that are, that are anybody could have written almost most of them. It's just sort of like, here is, here is something. And, and they're poignant often and, and they're, they will often have a, a strong image to them, but they're, they're, they're the normal waking world. And then she will have that followed up by something that she has overtly stated in the foreword of the book that this is this is dream language or night language, um, and she's describing she's describing a, a dreamed experience. And it's funny because just the other day on on Twitter there was discourse. I think there was a New York Times book reviewer who was basically like, "Yeah, nobody should ever write about dreams." Mm. And there was a whole Twitter discourse and engagement with this about whether you should or you shouldn't. Um, and, uh, you know, I fall on that you should, uh, but carefully, are you, are you you're joking? No, they have to this, be joking. This was, yeah, this was like two Your days dreams ago. Are, the dreams are the yeah. thing. Every, I, every single important thing that you're ever going to write or do comes from, come from your dream. I, I agree. I, I'm a hundred percent on your side, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And wake and Kavon, up, write Kavon a note. Knew that too. Yeah. Wake up, yep. wake up, write yep. a note, try to wake remember. up, write a note. Yeah. yeah, powerful. Yeah, and Kavan knew, knew this for sure. Um, actually, maybe I should read like a little. Hold on, let me see if I can read a little thing from Sleep Has His House, just to give people a flavor of this. Um, if I can find it, I think I have I have an ebook which I usually don't do, but uh, sometimes you got you got to do what you got to do sometimes. Mm. Um, okay, so okay, so like this is from Sleep Has His House. Um, this is, I'll start with the italicized section, which is describing something that's actually going on, where, where Kavan's actually describing something going on in the real world. Sometimes, looking out of an upstairs window, I could feel my mother looking out of my eyes, like people who, from a bridge, watch fish swimming below them. We saw the outside world as an alien element where we could take no part. Isolated behind the glass of our lonely window, we looked down on the daily life, which was not for us. And then in her dream, her dream sequence after this, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's several pages, but I'm going to read like two paragraphs. Shouting and singing and hallooing his satellites, the gregarious sun comes ranting upon the collective stage. After so many billion repetitions, you might expect him to be getting the least bit perfunctory, but not he, no siree. Like a conscientious actor determined to give the public full value for money, he rampages through his performance as enthusiastically as the first time he put on the act. Of course, the rest of the cast plays up to him. The clouds jump to their opening propositions, hurriedly snatching the gaudy properties of the cooperative scarf dance. On Earth, oceans below, be, excuse me, on Earth, ocean bellows to ocean across the continents like allied commanders exchanging a salute of guns. The mutual greetings of the archipelagos are more in time. So, so good. <laughs> it's really good. Slamming. It's really good. It's like uh, she's, it's almost she's like teaching you right. or something. Yeah, it's no, it's pretty Finnegan's Wake almost. Yeah, yeah, it so is. Good. There is a quality of Finnegan's Wake, and I mean that, that's what fin Finnegan's Wake was the night book, right? To to the Ulysses Day book. So so Sleep Has His House is like Finnegan's Wake in miniature. It's like if instead of it, Joyce, you know, traveled around and met people and talked to people, and he was very gregarious and he read everything. If instead of doing that. Joyce had sat in a room for 10 years shooting H. He might have written Sleep Has His House instead. Right? It's, it's, it's a similar. True. Yeah. 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 So, oh, so the person now, what do you like? 
Have you read any of the stuff she wrote before she went to the asylum? Have you read any of those novels? So I have not, right? And those would be the novels that are under her birth name. Uh, they right. tend to have more, from my understanding, kind of conventional or pastoral structures to them. Yeah. And I think it's from these, and this is kind of like my hobby horse coming out of all this. I think it's from these that a lot of people anchor her to Virginia Woolf, right? Because it's like... These kind of family-centric, introspective, depressive novels of, you know, bad marriages, things like that, and written by a talented woman in mid-20th century England. Uh, And I think at the end of the day, that's a bit derivative, and I would actually want to almost refocus her role in the literary canon. I would put her much closer to a Brazilian writer. I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with, but Clarice Lispector. Uh, yeah, you mentioned that. Now, I've heard this. I've, I'm, I've never read any Clarice. I've never read any of her, but that name keeps coming up. And uh, so eventually I'm going to have to. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Tell, tell us about her and that relationship, though, for sure. So Clarice, uh, you know, woman of the same generation of writers, writing most prolifically in 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, She was actually born into a Ukrainian Jewish family, fled to Brazil as an early child after some pogroms following World War I, uh, wrote in Portuguese, remained in Brazil for the remainder of her life, with the exceptions of some travel she did in the 40s and 50s with her then diplomat husband. But her writing is often compared to Kafka and Wolf as well. So it's an interesting Mm. symmetry there. I mean, she has this one book where a bored housewife eats a cockroach and has a metaphysical experience. Okay. And you can see the obvious parallels there, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, and, but, you know, Clarice herself hated those comparisons to Virginia Woolf and actually had a really, like, snide, the terrible duty is to go to the end quote, where she threw Virginia Woolf under the bus for killing herself. Oh, wow. Um, but Clarice herself also dealt with these very, strange kind of metaphysical structures. Her last book that was published after some fragments were collected uh, called Breath of Life is just about a narrator called the author who creates a woman who's a character in his story and he's writing solely so he can stay alive because when he knows, or he knows rather that when he stops writing, he's dead, which was also the conundrum Clarice found herself in when she was writing that book. Um, And just the way you have these like multiplicities of selves or like, reality behind the corner is very prominent in Lispector's work. And I would actually put Kavan very similarly into that. And I think they both kind of lack that, that final popularity because one, it's hard to translate this into any sort of cinematic work or other medium. Yeah. And two, um, again, you suffer from the relatable characters deficit, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that is an interesting thing. It's, it's funny that I've spent a lot of time writing it and writing courses and things. And the idea is to always, we want to have a character that's relatable and a character mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, you know, most of the time that people like, um, and then some of my favorite writers end up being these kinds of people where it's like, oh no, that character is sort of just a vessel for right. anything that you want to put into it. It doesn't. Nah, you know. man. I mean, you know, this, none of this uh, stuff, deserves your respect brad what <laughs> like what kind of yeah. stuff well you know none of this uh, deserves any of your praise or respect it's fine you're good. <laughs> you're good you just you know you got a punch yeah above your weight well i do go work on hard that. that's for let's sure let's go that's for all sure. day what are we doing <laughs> 58 minutes let's go minutes okay oh, oh hey. shit 
let's let's we do want to let's get, go we do want to ah. get ourselves into uh eventually we're gonna we're gonna wind down and then we're gonna get into the after dark where we're gonna talk about yeah. dr carl bluth who is on a after dark uh and we're gonna talk about uh uh also the other doctor dr binswanger i'm probably pronouncing that wrong but we'll get it right eventually it's a tricky word it's a tricky name um, yeah, well, you know, it's difficult yeah. if you don't learn like second languages. Right. Well, I'm, all, I'm, well, you, know, you know, I'm just a Rust Belt. Binsfang. All I know is, genau. all I know is, uh, mein, you know, all I know Mann. is Michigan English. Yeah, 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 yeah. Verstanz. <laughs> genau. Yeah. So let's, let's, let me read, let me read one thing. I want to read the foreword that's real quick. The foreword from Sleep Has His House. And then, and then John, we'll give you kind of the last word to say anything you want about Kavan. And then we'll, then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of close it down and we'll move into the after dark. Um, so this is from, this is the, the foreword that Kavan wrote for Sleep Has His House. Life is tension or the result of tension. Without tension, the creative impulse cannot exist. If human life be taken as the result of tension between the two polarities, night and day, night, the negative pole, must share equal importance with a positive day. At night, under the influence of cosmic radiations quite different from those of the day, human affairs are apt to come to a crisis. At night, most human beings die and are born. Let's go. <laughs> Sleep has his house. Describe the nighttime language, certain stages in the development of one individual human being. No interpretation is needed of this language. We have all spoken in childhood and in our dreams. But for the sake of unity, a few words before every section indicate the corresponding events of the day. So you read that and then you crack open Sleep has his house and you have like some kind of metaphysical transcendental experience for you know 200 and some odd pages uh <laughs> yeah all day let's go <laughs> back it up kevin we're gonna have to get you i'm gonna have to ship you my my annika oh, collection here man you have to get it in your hands so yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So, so, so we John, build this, so, and then we come back, right? Yeah. Well, let's get John. John. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if you've got anything else you want to say about Anna Kavan. Um, yeah, I'll I throw think, it to you. I think what that reminds me of, and what I would close it with, and it's an imprecise way of describing it. It just came to me, but reading Anna Kavan is like reading a painting, hmm. and by that I mean it kind of trains your mind into visualizing and looking and feeling at this medium, the written word through some almost like esoteric visual lens. Like you are looking at this broken, strange painting and you see paintings in her work, you see multi-layered illusions. And she herself, of course, was a painter. Was a painter. Um, yeah. And we can break into that later, but I think. Yeah. Quite a talented painter actually. What's that? Quite a talented painter, actually. Yeah, they're good yeah. paintings. Um, yeah. And I would point any listeners to also an early 20th century painter named Nathan Altman. Hmm. Uh, he okay. had some very strange kind of, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, I, I'm not an art person, but there's like this dark beauty to a lot of his paintings that I immediately thought of when I read Eagle's Nest. And yeah, if you want, if you want to feel that experience, then I would recommend Kavan, honestly. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So, okay. So, 
yeah, we're, we're going to, we're going to, um, we'll take a break here in a second, but first, John, um, where can people find you? And, uh, you know, I saw recently you'd had a, you had an article in Rolling Stone about, uh, I believe it was Russian, Russian Raptors in resistance to Putin, I believe. So that was pretty right, cool. Right. I read that last night. Um, yeah. so yeah, where can people find you? You know, what's the, what are you working on right now? Anything you want to, you know, kind of plug yourself for sure. sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy writing as a hobby, uh, freelance fiction or nonfiction. You can find me on Twitter at John Arterbury, J-O-H-N-A-R-T-E-R-B-U-R-Y. Uh, and I'm looking forward to and have been workshopping some different short fiction pieces. So hopefully get those out in the next several months here. And cool. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Yeah. And we'll have, we'll have links to, we'll have links to your Twitter and, and that um, in the show notes as well. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, this is great. It got us back into the Annika Vaughn game, which I, I'm, I'm super happy about. And, and I, I, if Art of Darkness never accomplished anything, but being a huge signal booster for Annika Vaughn, I would be happy. So, um, so great. So um, we'll, we'll be back in a few. Oh, sweet. Uh, for, for everybody, follow us. Uh, if you want to listen to the After Dark, we're going to talk about Carl Bluth, Ben Swanger. That is patreon.com. Patreon.com. Slash artofdarkpod.com. Sorry. Slash artofdarkpod. My man. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter, Art of Dark Pod. We're pretty active on there for sure. So, yeah. Talk to you in a few. See ya. See ya.